0: This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Greetings, Austin Life Church. My name is Stephen Crawford. It's good to be able to open God's Word with you, even though these are somewhat unusual circumstances, although maybe they're not that unusual anymore. We live in the age of pandemic, so um, maybe we should come to expect this more. Um, But it's good to be able to open God's Word with you. I had a chance to preach at your church a couple of years ago, if, if some of you may remember. Uh, so it's good to be invited back. Hopefully uh, I'll be able to come back and join you guys in person for worship gathering uh, someday soon. But I'm um, honored to, get, to ask, get asked to come uh, open God's word and and preach the word. Um, I'm a member here at a church in Austin called High Point Baptist Church. Um, was previously on on uh, staff of a, of a church in town in vocational ministry, currently in the marketplace. Uh, the Lord takes us in different directions and different seasons of life, but still love to get to, to preach and teach God's Word at every opportunity I get, uh, and, I, and I get those opportunities occasionally. So uh, I was really delighted uh, to see Mike reach out to me to, to uh, get to preach the Word again uh, at Austin Life Church. And so we are in a series uh, through the book of Mark, uh, and so we are going to continue on through the book of Mark together. Uh, if, so if you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is where we left off. Uh, we're going to continue to uh, examine the scriptures together, even though we're not able to gather. Uh, so hopefully this is a blessing to you. I'm going to read Mark chapter 5, um, starting in verse 21 through the end of the chapter. So kind of a long story, but hopefully if you've got a copy of the scriptures, that you're following along and you're able to follow the story With me, Um, I'll read the scripture, then I'll I'll say a a short prayer over my time here, and I'm praying also for you as you uh, hear this, that it would be a blessing to you, Uh, and then we'll dig in. Mark chapter five, if you got it, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Let me pray for us. Father, you gave us your word. And uh, we pray now that as we read it, and as we study it, as we examine it, that your Holy Spirit would use it uh, as a powerful uh, weapon to fight against sin and unbelief in our own hearts and that you would use it God to bear fruit in our life uh, that we would abide in you in this time Lord Jesus that we would see you clearly and that you would use this time uh, wherever we sit whenever we hear this uh, our friends that that are they're watching um, God that you would use this a- as a way to point them to you ultimately and and to fix their eyes on on the powerful son of God in whose name we pray amen Have you ever known a good storyteller? You you meet someone who may just have a way of recounting things that keeps you hooked in what they're saying, that draws you into what they're saying. When you encounter someone who can really lay a story out orally to you and and paint a, a dramatic picture with their words, you realize that this, it really is an art to be able to tell a good story. One that you might even consider requires a certain giftedness. Uh, to be able to pull it off well. What we have in this passage that we're studying uh, is, is a formula that is typical in the storytelling style of Mark's Gospel. Mark will begin a story, and then at a critical moment in the story, he will sort of pause and leave you hanging, and then he will interrupt the flow of the first story with another story, and then he will return again to the first story and resolve it. It's called by many commentators who who write commentaries about the book of Mark, they call this a Markan sandwich. It's a common feature of Mark's storytelling. You got the main story as kind of the bread on either side with a different middle story kind of sandwiched in between it. And it's clear that this is this kind of storytelling is the mark of a master of oral storytelling. Mark isn't so much telling us about Jesus, so much as he wishes to show us Jesus in action. Or as one commentator puts it, Mark writes with a paintbrush. And here we have a story of a man named Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue, we're told, and his daughter is deathly sick. He, he, she's at the point of death, that Mark tells us, and he, he begs Jesus to come and lay his hands on her so that she can recover and not die. And then Mark leaves us hanging there and he interrupts that story Inserting another story, a a woman who has a discharge of blood for 12 years desperately touches Jesus' garments and she's healed miraculously. And then Mark picks the story of the dying girl back up and brings it to a climactic resolution. The reason Mark does this is to draw our attention to a singular point. And he uses these two stories sandwiched together to kind of draw greater attention and emphasis to a greater, more overarching truth about Jesus that shines forth in both of the accounts laid alongside each other. They kind of mutually reinforce each other in the point he's trying to make. They're sort of meant to play off each other and and lift us and point us to something higher that Mark is trying to show us here. And when we read or hear a story unit like this, this Markan sandwich that we're looking at, the question is what exactly is Mark trying to draw our attention to in this? And what the Gospel writer is intending to show us in these two accounts is right in line with what we've already been seeing so far in his Gospel. The overwhelming power and supreme authority of King Jesus, the Son of God. We've seen that possibly before. Only now it's specifically his power in the face of extreme desperation in order to show us the essence of saving faith. What is the essence of true saving faith? And so we turn now to examine our passage to see just what what is this picture that Mark is painting for us of Jesus here. And as we look deeper into the story, we're going to make some observations along the way. We're going to draw out some inferences. And then finally, we'll conclude with some application that I hope is, is um, edifying to you as you watch this. So we're going to start at the top here, Mark chapter 5, verse 21, if you want to follow along again with me. Mark chapter 5, verse 21 it says, And when Jesus had crossed again in, in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Now, let's just do a bit of catch-up here, because I know we go week to week uh, hearing installments of the book of Mark. So let's just kind of catch up on where we're at. Mark, Mark's gospel essentially begins in chapter 1 with Jesus showing up on the scene and announcing something. He announces, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And what follows from there is a series of stories, little vignettes like the one we're examining here, where Jesus demonstrates his power and authority as God's king through various ways, either through exorcisms or healings or authoritative teachings on the kingdom of God. And if you were to just read the first half of Mark through about chapter eight, you might think that all of these stories just feel totally random and kind of jumpy and disjointed. You know, he goes here and he does this. Then he goes back and he says this, and then he does this, and then he goes over to this other place, and then he immediately does this, and then he immediately goes back to Galilee and he does this. That's sort of the way this goes uh, in Mark until about chapter 8. And that's a bit of what we're seeing here in this passage. If you remember from last week, Jesus hops into a boat with his disciples over across the Sea of Galilee to a Gentile region known as the Decapolis, and he casts out a legion of demons from a guy and fully restores him. It's an amazing story. And then he hops right back into the boat and returns across the sea back to Galilee, where he was before. You're almost kind of led to wonder, where is all this going, Mark? I mean, wh- what are we being led to see here in this? But what we are being led to see here is that every interaction with Jesus, from the moment that he steps on the scene and announces the kingdom of God at the beginning, until about halfway through the gospel in chapter eight, when he starts to now turn toward Jerusalem and his own crucifixion and resurrection, Every interaction is intended to show us just a slightly different angle of this powerful, authoritative king who has just showed up on the scene announcing the kingdom of God. So everything is just kind of different vignettes, different angles showing us that. Jesus has just returned from casting out a legion of demons from a Gentile across the sea. And he comes back now to Jewish Galilee and he is immediately met with someone who needs him. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, if the people interacting with Jesus in Mark's gospel is important to Mark's purpose, this begs the question, just who was this Jairus fella falling at Jesus' feet? Now, Jairus it was the ruler of the synagogue, we're told. He would have been a man of importance about town, a well-regarded man in the community. He's the, the one who would have kept the synagogue functioning. He would have handled all the official religious texts. Uh, if you, people didn't have copies of the scriptures just sitting around on their bookshelves at home collecting dust. The, the scriptures were, were carefully kept and maintained in the synagogue, in the local synagogue. And that's, that's what that would have been Jairus' job, one of his jobs. He would have been a highly dignified person, likely of some wealth and education and privilege as we'll see. So this is not a lowly man or an outcast or a poor person. We've seen these before in Mark, right? The outcast leper, the poor paralytic, the Gentile demon-possessed guy, an outcast from Israel. Jairus is not like these. But clearly, he is a desperate man in the story. He falls at Jesus' feet, something a man of esteem and dignity in the ancient Near East would have never thought to do to a dirty, dusty, working-class carpenter peasant like Jesus was. Verse 22 says, He fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live." And he went with him. Not only does he literally lower himself down to the ground, a man of high esteem to Jesus's stinky, dirty feet, but he metaphorically here is lowering himself still further down the social totem pole, if you will. By begging and pleading with Jesus about his dying daughter to come and lay his hands on her in her sickness that she may be healed. Now, it's important to understand here that she wasn't just like really sick. Like a few people on on your staff have COVID. They're sick, but they're like, they're not like really, 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 really sick. Like at the point of death, they've just got COVID and they can't gather with people. Makes sense, right? That's not what we're talking about here. The phrase used here by Mark uh, that's translated here as, at the point of death, meant that she is literally dying at that very moment that Jairus ran to Jesus. So death is inevitable, basically. It's a foregone conclusion at this point. So on top of this man's desperation, there is an extreme urgency here that is that he's communicating to Jesus. Jesus, I'm begging you to come now and heal my daughter before it's too late and she's gone forever and we can't lay hands on her anymore lest we being, you know, good Jews become now ceremonially unclean by touching and interacting with a corpse. Now, I don't want to pull the parent card here. I have two kids, um, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I got one on the way in in October. I don't want to just pull the parent card too casually. I know some people don't have kids. Uh, I certainly didn't before I had kids. uh, So I know what that's like. But let me just tell you as a parent, uh, I connect with this passage in a way that I never did before as a single person. Uh, Like I'm the guy now, you know, when I see a movie or a TV show that has like a dying or suffering son or daughter in it, I'm like making sure I'm like looking around at my wife, making sure no one's seeing me just like wiping the tears out of my eyes. I can't handle it when I see these scenes, right? The mere thought of one of my children becoming incurably sick to the point that this little girl was, And there being absolutely nothing that I as the father, the the strong one, right, can do about this, it's unthinkable to me as a father. It would bring out of me a desperation and a hopelessness that is extreme beyond imagination. This man, Jairus, is in the unthinkable position as a parent. His education is worthless to him. His high esteem and position in the community is worthless. His money and privilege is worthless. He is facing the utter darkness of the grief of losing his young beloved child, and he would have given up any one of those things in order to to have her well, if he could. And I love how Jesus responds here. Notice he doesn't say a word to Jairus, does he? He just goes with him. Verse 24 should be beautiful to you. And he went with him, it says. That's all it says. I love that. Do you have these desperate moments like Jairus ever in your life? Extreme grief about losing someone, maybe, extreme anxiety about the future, maybe it just grips you, extreme desperation at your condition, maybe it's a health condition of some kind, whatever it may be, Jesus goes with you into your darkness, facing it with you when you come to him like this man does. Now think about this too. Notice how much Jesus is willing here to divert his entire attention to individual people here. Even in the midst of great crowds that are surrounding him. Mark almost seems to overemphasize the crowds in this story, doesn't he? Verse 21, Jesus gets off the boat and he's immediately met by a great crowd that gathers around him. Verse 24, Jesus goes with Jairus here and again Mark tells us that there's great crowds going with him as he goes to see this young girl. Jesus is never too swayed or distracted by the fanfare of crowds to notice a single individual person that is in need. That's striking, isn't it? Don't, don't think for a second that Jesus, as king of the universe, and as the king of his kingdom that he's bringing, is too powerful or too busy or too important to notice or care about your need or your pain today. Th- there was no doubt lots of ministry and lots of teaching to be done among those crowds gathered there by the sea that day. But Jesus here, we see, allows himself to be diverted to a single desperate individual to, to showcase his power and mercy. Never underestimate Jesus' concern for the individual. He sees you and he goes with you, we see. Now here's where things take a strange turn because Mark sets the story up here for us to believe that Jesus is gonna go heal this young dying girl, right? Healing a sickness is something that we might have come to expect now already from Jesus at this point. We saw him hear the, heal the leper previously or the paralytic man, for instance. Both very serious conditions, to be sure, but quick and easy work for Jesus, as we've seen, right? But he gets interrupted. Verse 24. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So on the way to this highly urgent and desperate situation, we learn of a woman among the crowd here. And in a highly graphic language, uh, Mark describes in some unusual depth for us her condition. This woman had a very sensitive issue that she was dealing with. And, and Mark is wanting us to, again, understand the desperation here of this woman's situation. This woman was experiencing a gynecological problem, a discharge of blood, that we learned was going on for 12 years. 12 years of this. Now, it's important to really understand, I mean, that sounds problematic, maybe to you, But it's really important to understand the real problem for this woman here, because for many of us, you know, modern American Gentiles in our modern reading of this, the meaning kind of tends to get lost on us, of what what this would have meant culturally for her. According to the Mosaic Law, hang with me here. According to the Mosaic Law, God forbade any human blood to be brought into his presence for worship. We read about this primarily in the book of Leviticus in our Old Testament blood sacrifices of animals were required by God at regular times and regular intervals for various offerings as a way for God to accept our worship and for us to be made right with him. And he absolutely understand this. He absolutely hated the pervasive pagan practices of human blood sacrifice that the surrounding evil nations were practicing and that were being practiced and have been practiced for all of human history. Human sacrifice is a regular, regularly occurring uh, phenomenon in cultures uh, as far back as we can can tell. And so because of this, he made sure to put in his law, his unique special holy law, that even women – during their menstrual periods would not be allowed to enter into worship with God's people. Now, why? We hear that today and we kind of bristle at that. Why would God put that in there? Because God is sexist? Because God thinks periods are icky? No. Because he was trying to communicate to his people how much he detests the shedding of human blood as an expression of worship which was a common human practice and has been for some ages. It still is in some parts of the world. He didn't want there to be any confusion of the blood in his presence, you see. So if there was blood shed from a human body, you were unclean and unable to come into worship until you were properly cleansed of that blood. And he gave us means and ways of doing that in his law. Not only this, but, but anyone who touched or came into any physical contact with a bleeding woman was considered by God to be unclean and unable to come into worship. So they had to be cleansed as well, anyone who came into contact with a bleeding woman. And so there were laws around how women in their menstrual period should conduct themselves during this time and, and how they should be cleansed in order to return to social life and most importantly return to the worship of God with his people. So, we must understand here what Mark is communicating to us about this woman. Not only was she experiencing the physical ailment of the discharge of blood for 12 years and and physical discomfort that, that must have brought with it, but also, and perhaps even more significantly for her, she would have been experiencing 12 years of social and spiritual isolation. Imagine that, 12 years of the shame and loneliness that would have come from never being able to be near people, 12 years of her never being able to gather for worship with God's people, ne- never being able to make offerings of worship to God, never being able to hear the scripture being read or preached, never being able to hear the voices of singing saints around her reminding her of God's truth. This is a stigma that is hard for us to understand. We talk about social stigmas a lot in our day and age. This is a social stigma that is hard, I think, for many of us to comprehend. Additionally, we read she was poor. Mark tells us that in the social and spiritual isolation, she in desperation spent all that she had on doctors and medical treatments. No doubt trying all sorts of dehumanizing and degrading treatments on her in her condition. Remember, this is not modern medicine that we're talking about here. She wasn't going to a sterile, clean doctor's office. She's getting ancient remedies applied to her that were likely sometimes detrimental to her. If you know anything about ancient medical practices, they sometimes could be pretty horrific and dehumanizing. And so all of this was to no avail. In fact, he tells us that she actually grew worse as all of this went on for for 12 years, probably because of many of the bizarre treatments that she might have been receiving in all this. So she's poor, she's alone, she's desperate. She would have been in that crowd, by the way, that day, illegally. So the penalties for this would have been severe for her. They would have found out about her condition in that crowd. So this desperate woman basically was saying here, Jesus is my only hope. I cannot go on living like this. So either Jesus heals me or I get caught for entering this crowd of people in my condition and I get executed or ostracized further. Mark tells us, verse 29, he continues Immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. So instead of her bleeding, making Jesus unclean, his power makes her completely healed of her disease. Jesus by his power makes the dirty and the isolated clean and restored here. And in this, Mark gives us a beautiful picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is like in what is known as The great exchange. At the cross, Jesus gets all of our sin and shame and uncleanness heaped upon him. And in exchange, we, those who come to him in faith, we get all of his life-giving power, his healing, his holiness flowing to us. Our sins are forgiven. We are granted his eternal life. We are clean. And this happens, we are told in scripture, by faith in who Jesus is and what he's done. The transaction happens when we repent of sin and we receive him as king, not by cleaning ourselves up with good works. Just like this woman trying to do good works to fix yourself, it gets us nowhere. In fact, it will actually make matters grow worse for us because we will become either self-righteously dependent on our good works or we will become so despairing in our good works that we will give up. This woman was following all the laws of Moses for years, trying to find relief for her pain. All it could do was manage her situation and instruct her on how to go about her life in her condition. But it couldn't stop the death. It couldn't stop the decay and the shame that was destroying her slowly for 12 years. It takes one who perfectly embodies all of the righteousness of the law, who is incorruptible to the power of sin and death, who can truly take our sin and remove it from us forever. The fact that this woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment, that's actually what's implied here, is that she's touching the hem of Jesus' garment. The fact that Mark tells us that she touches the hem of Jesus' garment is no accident here. Jewish men wore tassels on the hems of their tunics as required by the Mosaic Law. You can read about this in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 15, if you're interested. They were commanded in Numbers 15 by God to wear tassels on the fringes of their garments, as a reminder to them of all of God's commandments in the law that they were commanded to keep perfectly. <laughs> and there's a bit of irony here, isn't there? That this unclean woman makes her way, pushing through the crowds, breaking God's law in her uncleanness, with a mind to touch Jesus's hem likely these tassels on the fringes of his tunic, which was the exact reminder of the very commandments of God's law that she would have been been breaking in doing this. The woman, a law-breaking, unclean sinner here, touches the, the tassels of Jesus, the only perfect law keeper who has ever lived. And she is not immediately killed for this. In fact, she is healed completely in an instant as his holy, righteous, law-keeping power flows out of him and to her. And what's more, after she touches him, I love this, the verb there in verse 32 implies that Jesus kept on looking for her. He kept on looking around for her as though he was exhaustively, thoroughly searching the crowds, pressing in around him. He was looking intently around the crowds for some time. It was a continuous action. Again, we're struck here by Jesus' dissatisfaction with a crowd of faceless fans, adoring crowds around him. He's after an encounter with a desperate individual so filled with faith and so in need of his power that he will literally stop what he's doing and search intently to find the one. She's already been healed, you'll note, by this time. So why try to find her, Jesus? The good has already been done, Jesus. Move on. He's not satisfied with that. He wants to know her. He wants her to be known by him. He wants to have an encounter with this person whose faith led her to do such a thing so that he can explain to her what just happened to her. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Instead of receiving harsh condemnation here for her audacity, and her violation, she's met with Jesus's tender mercy and compassion. He tells her with his kind words in front of the crowd, what she had already felt and experienced. And he uses a word to speak directly to her here, calling her daughter. Now in all likelihood, we aren't told explicitly in the story, but we can deduce. This woman would have likely been older than Jesus, given her condition and given how long she would have been suffering with it. Jesus is a younger man here. Jesus is a man in his early 30s and and he's calling this older woman daughter. Now why is this significant? Because it shows Jesus's tender love for this woman and her condition. The the kind of love that only comes from the Father, the, the God who made her and fashioned her body and who knew her before the foundation of the world. This woman would have likely not received anything like love from anyone for quite some time. She certainly didn't receive it from the doctors, who were happy to take all her money, though she got worse. And here she's receiving from Jesus the the strongest and the most intimate love a human can experience. The love received from a father who takes nothing from her, except for her shame and her disease, and only gives her and restores to her everything, even in the face of her deepest fears and her deepest shame. She gets exposed here, laid bare before the crowd that was for touching him. And at that very moment, she receives the love from God the Father through Christ his Son extended to her, healing her, saving her, calling her daughter. But the story's not over, right? Mark brings us right back to the original story of Jairus's dying daughter with some untimely and interrupting gut-wrenching news here. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, so as he's speaking to this woman, while he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead, Jairus. Why trouble the teacher any further? Do you hear the the hopelessness and the resignation there from these, these deliverer of news? When the unthinkable happens, that's when Jesus speaks his first words here to Jairus. This is the first time Jesus speaks to Jairus, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Jairus, I know what you're tempted to think right now when you hear that news. That's what Jesus is saying. I know where your head's going to go with this news. But you just saw me heal this woman because of her faith. Keep looking at me, stay with me. Now is the time to keep your eyes fixed on me, Jairus. Now is the time to crank up the journey and don't stop believing. Okay? Remember why you came to me in the first place. You were desperate. You were powerless. You were without hope for your daughter. Now stay with me, and let's keep going. I haven't given up, Jairus. I'm still going. I'm still going to your house. So come with me. Verse 37, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now in this day it was common in the death of a of a family member for for people who had means, people who had some wealth, to go out and hire professional mourners. Okay. This is kind of an unusual thing for us today. We, We don't mourn very well in our day and age. It's a different topic, but these people, they, when they, when they wanted to mourn, they knew how to mourn. They'd go out and hire mourners. They were, they were typically women. They would usually bring pipes and flutes and they would play sad songs. While these, you know, paid mourning women would weep and wail loudly over the deceased person. So Jesus walks into this house and he's immediately met with this professional commotion. So not only had everyone lost all hope of this girl recovering by the hand of Jesus, but now money was kind of spent on this, right? People were invested in the outcome of this little girl's death. While while Jairus seems to have remained faithful here, he's still walking with Jesus. He's still going in. It's easy to see that literally no one else in this, this scene, no one else in this household, believes that Jesus can do anything at this point. They've already hired the mourners by the time Jesus arrives. Verse 39. And when they had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So these professional mourners, they didn't really care about this young girl, right? They find Jesus' claim here to be laughable. So not only was no one believing that Jesus could really do anything here anymore, but now they're actively mocking him for, for, for thinking that something can be done. Verse 40 says, but, they, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Jesus, again here, uses a a tender, endearing term with this little girl, much like he did with the bleeding woman before. He uses a sweet little term that a dad would typically use to wake his little girl up like I do when I wake my two-year-old daughter up in the morning. I, I go into her bed and I gently put my hand on her and I say, come on, baby girl, it's time to get up. This is how Jesus chooses to perform this miracle of raising this young girl from the dead. Remember with Lazarus in John chapter 11, another resurrection account of Jesus, it's a loud commanding voice that Jesus uses. Lazarus, come forth. He yells it at the grave, we were told. But here... It's just a sweet little endearing invitation to simply wake up. What Jesus is showing us here in this is that raising people from the dead for him is as easy as waking a little girl up from sleeping. The horrors of the power of death to Jesus are no more imposing to him than a nap, it seems. And he proves it by telling everyone to feed her so that everyone can see her full restoration from death is complete. Give her something to eat. She's now eating and walking around to their utter amazement. Now, as we read the story and we walk away with this kind of portrait now of Jesus that Mark paints for us, what are we to take from this? This story shows us three important things about the essence of saving faith. Three important things. Remember, when Jesus shows up on the scene way back in the beginning in Mark chapter one, he says that his hearers must repent and believe the gospel. So if you're truly hearing Jesus and truly receiving his kingly rule in a salvific way, then belief is... Saving faith, what we're talking about, in him is what he's after. He wants saving faith from those who hear him and receive him. So what can we learn here about the essence of saving faith? Number one, true saving faith does not depend on who we are, but depends fully on who Christ is. True saving faith does not depend on who we are, but who Christ is. We learn this best by the contrasts that Mark draws between the two characters, Jairus and the bleeding bleeding woman. One has a name, Jairus. The other remains nameless throughout and is basically known by her condition. We don't even know her name. She's just the bleeding woman, right? One is a recognized person of importance in the community. The other is a poor nobody, no name. One is accepted into the center of social and spiritual fabric of society. The other is completely isolated from everyone and is ceremonially excluded, unclean. You see the contrast Mark is drawing here. Now, which one had saving faith is the question. Answer, both, both. True saving faith is irrespective of wealth, education, privilege, and social status. It doesn't matter who you are, it matters who Christ is. And Christ sees the heart of the person. It's true that Jesus loves and shows mercy and compassion to the outcast. We, we know this, we're well acquainted with this. But he also, hear this, extends grace to people like Jairus, people who weren't particularly poor or cast out from society. For some of you here this morning, this is really good news. You hear that and you're like, that's kind of like me because you look at your life, you don't necessarily see it. maybe a ton of hardship in your life. Maybe you have a decent education. Maybe you have a lot of friends. Maybe you come from a good family. You have a good job. You're not, you're not scraping by. And maybe you're tempted to look at yourself in that and feel insecure about your standing in Christ. Could Jesus save me? I haven't really been through anything. Jesus saves people like you too. Is he King and Lord of your life? That's what matters. You see, so many people are tempted to paint Jesus out to be this kind of Che Guevara-style revolutionary who kind of thumbs his nose at the privileged and the powerful and the educated and the wealthy and kind of sticks it to them in favor of the poor or the outcasts. But, but Christ shows no partiality, you see, in his kingdom. Here we see a gracious and powerful King Jesus recognizing that, no, saving faith can show up even in people like Jairus too, and he responds to that faith. When you come to Christ in faith, like Jairus did, and like this bleeding woman did, all of the identities that you carry around with you in the world begin to become less and less important in light of the salvation that he brings. As John says famously, He must increase, but I, I must decrease. Or as the Apostle Paul famously says, Galatians 2.20, I, Paul, have been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, the way that I'm living now in my my life, I live by faith in the son of God, who loved me and who gave himself for me. The identities that we carry around with us, the world say matter really a lot. They decrease in light of receiving Christ, you see. True saving faith in Christ doesn't depend on who we are, but rather on who Christ is. We look to him as our king and as our Savior, and we take our eyes off of ourselves. The second application I want to draw out from this, this one, as we look at this passage, is that true saving faith is a recognition of God's power in the midst of our desperation. True saving faith is a recognition of God's power in the, in the midst of our desperation and hopelessness. Again, when we compare the two characters of our story here, we're gripped by the sheer desperation that we see in both of them that led them to Jesus in the first place. This too is part of the essence of true saving faith. Do you know of your hopelessness apart from Christ? Where would you be today if Christ had not reached out to you and touched you and awakened you from death, absorbing all the shame and uncleanness of your sin at the cross and calling you to himself? Where would you be? If you believe for a second that your life would have been fine without him, you could have gone on as normal, then you don't understand saving faith according to the gospel. Saving faith recognizes that we are all truly desperate in our situation here on earth. We need saving. But not just in some sort of general, generic way, but in a personal, individualized kind of way. You you see the crowds around Jesus that day likely knew generally, of their need for a Savior to come and heal and redeem and restore Israel. But we zero in on these two desperate individuals in this story who believed. They truly felt the utter hopelessness of their situation without the powerful intervention of Christ. So it's not just that, well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true, as Paul writes in Romans 3. That's obviously true. But saving faith goes even a step further than than just all have sinned. More like what Paul writes a few chapters later in Romans chapter 7. It says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Romans 7. So it's not just that humanity is utterly lost and hopeless. We, we Humanity is in a, in a bad place. We need help. No, it's I am utterly lost and hopeless. And I throw myself at the feet of King Jesus, saying with Jairus and this woman, Jesus, you are my only hope. I have nothing apart from you. There's a wonderful old hymn called Come Ye Sinners. I don't know if you sing this song at your church, but it's a a wonderful hymn. It has this incredible, mournful, haunting melody to it. And and the whole hymn sings of the, the mournful, desperate state that we find ourselves in when we come in repentance and faith to the grace of God in Christ. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. That's the first verse. And there's this incredible little line in it, uh, in one of the later verses, that that so beautifully captures the essence of saving faith that Mark shows us here in this story. And it goes like this. It, It says, all the fitness that he requireth is to feel your need of him. All the fitness that he requireth is to feel your need of him. Now, what does Jesus require of you to be saved? What does he require of you to do to be saved? Well, according to this hymn, and I think according to Mark's story here, nothing but truly feeling your desperate need for him in your weakness, in your sin, and he does all the rest. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need for him. True saving faith is a recognition of God's power in the midst of our desperation and hopelessness. Lastly, and, and here's good news for us. Here's the good news for us who've trusted in Christ uh, as you hear this. And, and here's the invitation for those of you who, who maybe haven't put your faith in Christ. You haven't really done that, at least in the way we're talking about here, in a way that will truly save you. Saving faith means that we can face death one day. Death looms before all of us. We can face death one day with total peace and without fear. For our death, according to Jesus here, will merely be like this young girl's, just laying down and going to sleep. Jesus approaches this little girl simply, calmly, and gently wakes her up from what he calls a nap, basically. The mourners that day are rightly perplexed by this because they knew they weren't confused, all right? These aren't just dumb, ancient people who don't know any better, don't know the difference between death and sleep. They knew she was dead, right? Many of them likely were there and and, and saw her painfully and truly go to her death. She was stopped breathing. She had no pulse. She was cold and white, likely. It may have been – probably was hours or even most of a day For Jesus to come and arrive at this house to see her cold dead body laying there. They weren't confused. The good news of the gospel today, friends, is that for those of us who truly put our faith in this powerful son of God, our death, your death, will be no more than going to sleep. Only to soon again be gently and tenderly awakened by our loving King Jesus to be with him in his kingdom forever. That's what you have to look forward to today, friends. If you put your faith in this Jesus we read about here, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. That's the gospel, friends. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that just as we examine this passage together, that you would uh, apply it to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would use your word uh, to bear the fruit of peace as we consider our death, as we consider that one day we too will succumb to the the pangs of death, would you remind us, God, that the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope that we have in King Jesus is that our death will be like merely going to sleep and that you will tenderly, lovingly awaken us in your kingdom like this little girl. Father, if anyone here hearing my voice is not a Christian, has not truly put their faith in King Jesus, who truly has not repented of sin and turned from their sin, I pray, Father, that You would you would call them to Yourself now and that You would help them to feel their need for You, their desperation and their hopelessness apart from You and their sin and in death. We love You, Father, and we praise You for Your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.